All right, I have to figure out how long my leash is. Okay, if I get past here and I fall over, then somebody pick me up. <clears throat> I would invite you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of James. And at, while you're doing that, kind of simultaneously do two things at one time, grab your core guide and get that out. There's a place on the front of that where you can take uh, notes to remember things that you might want to discuss with your core groups this week. And then uh, there's some devotionals and other scripture readings to help you follow along uh, throughout the days of the week and keep you kind of on topic and, and in the text that we are um, examining over these weeks in our, in our series on the book of James, um, moving from talk to action. So James chapter, I got to do this with two hands, chapter one. And I want to start in verse 18, and then we're going to flip over and we're going to read a few verses in chapter 2, and this text, the verses that we're going to read, get right to the heart of everything that James is about. And so take that as encouragement, take that as warning, whatever you want to do, it kind of gets to right to the heart of James' message. So we're going to spend our time there this morning. So I'd ask if you'd stand with me. These are the words of Brother James. He chose to give us birth by his true word, and here is the result. We are like the first crop from the harvest of everything he created. Know this, my dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to grow angry. This is because an angry person doesn't produce God's righteousness. Therefore, with humility, set aside all moral filth and the growth of wickedness, and welcome the word planted deep inside you, the very word that is able to save you. You must be doers of the word and not only hearers who mislead themselves. Those who hear but don't do the word are like those who look at their faces in a mirror. They look at themselves, walk away, and immediately forget what they were like. But there are those who study the perfect law, the law of freedom, and continue to do it. They don't listen and then forget, but they put it into practice in their lives. They will be blessed in whatever they do. If those who claim devotion to God don't control what they say, they mislead themselves. Their devotion is worthless. True devotion, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the word from contaminating us. And then flip over to chapter 2. I want to read verses 14 through 17. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way... Faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I like James. I really do, most of the time. He's a pretty straightforward guy, which I appreciate. It's, it's kind of hard to miss James' point, but James, well, maybe we could call him Mr. Accountability, and I don't always like that. I don't always appreciate Mr. Accountability. Sometimes I'd just as soon see Mr. Accountability take a flying leap, you know, take a long walk off a short pier. Um, I don't like him because, well, 
he isn't afraid to get right up in my face. I mean, he's not bashful about getting up in your kitchen. And sometimes that makes me just a little bit uncomfortable. Well, you said you were going to do that. I know, I know. Well, why didn't you? Well, um, come on, Bach, quit being a slacker. You're better than that. You know, I read the book of James that's kind of, you know, these are some of the conversations that I have, me, James, and the Holy Spirit. I'm imagining that your conversation probably goes about the same. My tendency is to be defensive. I'm tempted to let the anger rise up in me. How dare you call me out on that? I get this feeling of guilt once in a while. So the book of James, if we're honestly speaking here, is, is difficult for some of us. We need the reminder that the Holy Spirit is a gift to us. To, he, he's our advocate to come alongside us, to lead us into all truth, to gently nudge us. Sometimes, though, the gently nudging comes with a two-by-four, but it is out of love that the Holy Spirit helps mold and shape and guide and direct. And the Holy Spirit's work is to convict us when we need convicting. If we're out of line, it's the Holy Spirit's job to kind of be that border collie uh, around our life and help remind us of, you know what, these are the things that you set out, these are the things that you profess to believe in, and, and so, you know, your behavior should probably fit within those borders. Now, James, as we have said, he was one uh, who was accused of being a proponent of what you might call works righteousness. In other words, you had to work to earn God's grace. You had to work to earn God's love and, and salvation. And so people would read the book of James and, and, and they'd come back to, well, he's always going back to the list of rules, and you should do this, and you should do that. And, and so a lot of times people get uncomfortable about that, and so they want to just rip James out of their Bible and say, you know what, he's telling me I have to earn salvation, so that's not really worthy of God's Scripture. Martin Luther, we talked about this last week, he put James unlabeled in the back of his Bible because he thought it was an epistle of straw. And so we, we kind of come at it with some people saying, you know, this is what he's saying, but I got to tell you, that's the furthest thing from truth in my reading of James. One test of scripture that I think is worthy is to look for the fingerprints of Jesus' teaching in the text. To lay scripture in front of you and read it and listen for the echo of Jesus' voice. Listen for the echo of Jesus' teaching in the text. And if you see Jesus' fingerprints and you hear the echo of Jesus' voice, then it, it's probably authorized, you think? I would say so. And when I read the book of James, it's almost a mirror image using different words. But if you, if you lay the book of James alongside Jesus' Sermon on the Mount you're going to see a lot of parallels. And so Jesus' fingerprints are there and the voice, the echo of Jesus' voice is, is in the text. James clearly roots his moral teaching in the teaching of Jesus and the saving grace of God. James is one who believes that, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. And the verses that we just read the very first one, verse 18, we find one of the fullest descriptions of the purpose and the outcomes of God's word in all of Scripture. God chose to give us birth through his true word. And here's the result. We are like the first crop from the harvest of everything he created. We are saved by God's grace to be the first fruits and to extend this blessing of, of Jesus to other people. 
God uses his word. God uses the gospel message that we have been given and entrusted with, the, the good news about Jesus, and, and he, he gives it to us. He speaks it into our lives to redeem us, to regenerate us, to, to transform us so that when we approach the scriptures, we, we, don't, we can leave the scripture, time in the scripture as different people, as people who have come to the word of God and have an encounter with him. And so when we leave an encounter with God, we can go away rejuvenated, redeemed, transformed, refreshed. Verse 18 kind of lays out in just a sentence or two uh, our identity in Christ with this new birth and transformation. It's a we, we get this beautiful picture of God transforming the world, of God's salvation, saving the world in this picture. And we, in the church, are to be a picture of this beauty. So as the people of God, hands and feet of Christ, Jesus launched the church so that we could be the model for everybody else in the world. So have you ever been to Ikea? Ikea people, go ahead, it's all right to raise your hand, if not. Or maybe you've been to a, a retirement community or a new subdivision that's going in, and, and you know what they do when they put in a new subdivision, and, and in Ikea, you know, Ikea doesn't want to just lay out all of their merchandise uh, so that it's all random and haphazard. They organize it very carefully, and they walk you through this maze in their building, and every so often you come across... a, a an apartment that's totally furnished. So like an 850 square foot apartment. I mean, that seems like a small place for a total apartment. And so it's hard for us to imagine, well, what's that going to look like? How am I going to take all of the pieces of Ikea merchandise from their floor and arrange it in a way that makes sense and it's a beautiful picture of what life could look like if I only have 850 square feet. So what Ikea does is they, they put it all together for you. So you can walk through this model apartment and you get this vision, you get this picture of reality, of what you could do if you had this much square footage. But unless you had a vision or a picture or something like that, you might flounder around and not know, okay, which pieces do I need to get and, and how do I fit it all and stack it and it's just not coming out right. But if you see a picture, then, then you can work towards that picture. You know, see... Uh, all of the moral teaching that, that comes in the, throughout the book of James, it all hinges around us getting this picture in our minds. And the picture is one of God's salvation, that he's redeeming and transforming, and he uses the church to be the model picture in the world. He uses me and you to be the picture for other people so that they can see what it's supposed to look like if they give their life to Jesus. Sometimes we do better at, at sometimes than, than others, right? But Jesus planted us in the world to be the model so that others could see the way. And all of James' teaching kind of hinges around us getting a picture of this, this, um, this beautiful picture of what God is doing in the here and now and what God is finally going to do when he brings all things to perfection, when he brings all things to completion, when, the, when there's the new heaven and the new earth that he, that he brings and he creates. Paul reminds us that when we come to faith in Christ, it's like there is a new creation. We are the model. We are the picture. And everything James says hinges on us seeing that picture. This is who you are. This is who we are. This is where we're headed, and you have, to get, you have to understand this picture of beauty. Otherwise, all of the instructional teaching that James has is just going to come across as a long list of do's and don'ts, the rules that we have to follow. And when your faith degenerates into thinking that you have to check off boxes, you're going to wear out really rapidly. You know, you're going to lose energy. You're going to lose uh, the desire to stay in it. You're, you're not going to be able to persevere because you th you're going to mess up, and you're like, oh, I'm a failure. I messed up again. Oh, my goodness. How could God love somebody like this? If we don't understand that God loves us regardless, his, his love doesn't go up and down on a meter based on your behavior. He loves you as you are. His forgiveness is there. You have to step into it. And then 
this whole process of sanctification, this whole process of redemption, this whole process of God taking the broken pieces and mess of our life and helping put them back together into this beautiful picture that he's finally one day going to complete, that's what we need to see. Otherwise, the rest of James is just going to wear you out because it's going to come across as, oh my goodness, just the weight of following the rules. But he says, all of those things that God asks of us, they really give us freedom. Because we know the boundaries and we're free to operate within those boundaries. And the Holy Spirit, like I said, is the one who helps remind us when we get too close to the boundary. So, uh, James constantly, insistently, he focuses our attention on faith and works. And this is really the heart of, of James' message. Each, each week will have some connection to faith and works. Faith, in, and here's what I want to say, faith that is alive is a faith that leads to faithful action in loving, serving, and respecting each other in a way that points people to Jesus. That's what our text told you this morning. Soren Kierkegaard, philosopher, scholar, theologian, he teaches that if Christianity really matters, it should make a difference in the way we live. Well, that sounds pretty scriptural to me. So what is works? What is deeds, or good deeds? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on spelling out exactly what good works are. I don't want to take a, a many seconds or minutes talking about what a, a good deed uh, is. I'm just going to give it to you like this. The ancient church fathers understood works as self-sacrifice, generosity, and humility. And if you want to look up further definition, all you got to do is open the book and start reading, and you'll come across the things that are good works and good deeds. But look up Psalm 15 and Micah 6, 8. Those are two really good places to start. When we read a passage like this in James, some of us say, okay, well, just give me the list. This inner sense of you know, legalism bubbles up within us. And okay, if, if faith and works are connected, well, just give me the list. We're Americans. We put our nose to the grindstone and we plow through. And if there's work that's got to be done, just give me the list so I can work through it. That's how we think. And, and, uh, and we think, well, of course, there's got to be things like, well, I got to pay my tithe. I got to read my Bible. How long? Um, I got to pray, I got to help down at the mission, you know, you can come up with a long list of things that you think might be on that list, but it goes, it goes way deeper than that. Christianity isn't about checking off the boxes, it's about your heart being totally transformed. Now, I think I've I want to give you a picture of what this looks like. I think I've told you this before. Um, I'm kind of like required reading for LDS missionaries in our zone. I mean, we're getting knocks on the door all the time. One, I like to engage them in dialogue. You know, just talk to them. Learn about where they're from, what they like. You know, how many miles they've put on their bikes, you know, things like that. I'm interested in that kind of stuff. So just, I just want to treat them as humans, as people, and, and get to know them. And, um, but they come to our house frequently, and I, I love them. I really admire their persistence. I really admire their drive to get out and, and talk to people about their faith. I wish more Christians would be that persistent about sharing their faith with other people. And I absolutely love how they look for ways to serve. Hey, thanks, thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Dave. Is, 
is there anything that we could help you with? Every single time that we close a conversation, that's kind of how it ends is, hey, is there anything that we could do to help you out? But there's a big difference in their faith and mine. They're trying to earn something. And our conversations always, 100% of the time, get around to talking about being saved by grace through faith. And it's not by anything that we do to earn it. You don't have to do a bunch of things to earn God's grace and salvation. He gives it to you freely. That's the good news of Jesus. It, gets, it really gets down to the motive of our heart. That's the difference between my LDS friends and us. If we have to earn salvation, then the cross of Jesus means absolutely nothing. Maybe I could tell you like this. We have a, we have a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout troop as part of the ministry of our church. Once a year, we have a Scout Sunday, and, and we celebrate that. But, you know, every Monday night and every Thursday night, we have, you know, boys in the building downstairs, and they're working on all sorts of stuff. And one of the big parts of scouting is earning things called a merit badge. And you earn merit badges so you can kind of climb the ladder of ranks. And ultimately, your goal as a Scout coming in is, hey, I want to be an Eagle Scout, and there's several ranks along the way, and you have to do certain things and practice certain things and earn so many merit badges, and, and you have to do service hours and all sorts of stuff that go into this. And I was thinking about the merit badges. There's some of the merit badges for Eagle Scout that are required. Right, boys? There's, there's required badges. And then there's a whole bunch of them that are optional. Like, you can pick and choose which ones. So if you want to study engineering or, um, you know, canoeing or, you know, there's all sorts of different things that you can earn a merit badge for. Some of them are required. You absolutely have to do these. No questions, or you won't be an Eagle Scout. The rest of them are by choice, by personal interest. And so here's what I notice. Some boys don't really like the required badges, right? That's a fair statement. It's a struggle when you feel like this is one that I have to do, and it, it, it's not really, you know, I'm not really finding a whole lot of joy and interest in the topic, but I've got to do it. I've got to go through all of these steps. And, you know, one of them is citizenship in the community, and you have to go out and you have to talk to elected officials, and you have to do service hours, and you have to do a presentation on your community. There's a lot of busy work that's really good to be exposed to at this age, but sometimes the connection isn't there like, well, how is this going to benefit me later in life? So some of it's going out on trust, but you can tell that there's not a whole lot of motivation to finish these merit badges because they're harder and when you don't have the interest in it, you feel like you have to do it. But then on the other hand, there's some of these badges that they love doing. Kayaking and um, there's just a whole list. Um, there's nature and fishing and fly fishing and you name it. There's probably a merit badge for it. And some boys, they look at that list and they're like, oh my goodness, I can get a badge for that? And they get, the, they get the pamphlet and there may be a lot of work involved in it, but they just pour themselves into it and they just start working on it, you know, fiercely and, and they get it done before they know it. And you know why? It's because they love it. And the love they have for the work that they're doing compels them to do the work. Some of them you have to do. And the motivation is, I'm only doing this because I have to, because you're making me do it. Some of them, wow, you look at, you just started on that one and you're finished already? Yeah, because I, I got home from school and I just poured all my time and effort into it and I got, I got it done because I loved it. And that's what compelled them to do the work. When God changes your heart, when you experience the full measure of Jesus' love, you're, 
you'll no longer feel that working, doing good deeds are required. You will want to do them because you love God so much and, and you will find that they bring you joy. When God changes your heart, helping other people, serving others in his name, extending his love and compassionate care will bring joy into your hearts. You will want to step into that stuff because God has transformed you and he's making you like his very own character. Your motivation will change. You will be compelled because of the magnitude of God's grace and love for you. You'll be compelled to get out there and do these things. It'll just become natural to you. But my fear is, my fear is too many Christians think that they have to earn grace. That, that serving others falls in this category of, oh, I have to do that. It's on my checklist. And if I don't do these things, then God won't love me. If I don't read my Bible enough and do these other things, maybe, God's, maybe God won't forgive me. That's a horrible place to live. Because you never, you never know. You're never certain that you've done enough. And that's the story of my LDS friends, is they never know if they've done enough. And so they keep at it, motivated, because they're afraid. They're afraid that they could lose God's love and that they won't do enough to earn a place in heaven. At the core of James' message is that Christianity is about having this heart transplant, that God takes the heart of stone that, that we have and, and gives us a soft, loving, caring, compassionate heart like, heart like Jesus, and you humble yourself before God, and you repent, and you give up control, and, and you give him your life, and he transforms you. He mends your brokenness, and he helps lead you to joy and to wholeness. He creates this new life in you. And then you're compelled to go out and do these things. James gives us a couple examples. Uh, one of them is change, changed speech. Our vocabulary changes. And near the end, then he talks about serving uh, orphans and, and widows as a way of talking about caring for those who have been pushed to the margins of society. I got to skip over some of this so that we finish. But I got a lot of words here that I think are relevant to us. This is what we're talking about makes sense. Do, do you hear it? Sometimes my experience in dealing with us is that we say we believe, but we don't really believe fully. Maybe we believe parts of it. We sit and we listen to the word of God. We hear some of it and we think we're good when we leave. Okay, I did my church thing for the week. Check that one off the list. And so part of us, we mentally assent to believing what we're talking about. But if you look at the fruit of our lives, you might scratch your head and wonder. We say that we believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you believe that? Really? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus was raised from the dead. All right, we're getting there. It, so, so if you believe that God can raise Jesus, a corpse, somebody who is buried in the ground dead, D-E-D, -E -D, dead. 
If you believe that God could take a dead, lifeless body that was buried and in the grave and raise him to new life, then that obligates you to believe that God can take a dead, lifeless marriage that's in the toilet and raise it to new life, right? You believe then, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, that he can take a dead-end job, he can take the fact that maybe you don't have any friends and you're struggling in the relationships that you do have, and he can restore those and breathe new life into them, right? Okay. Sometimes I feel like we say we believe things, but then when, we, then when we run into the problems of life, we don't believe them because we think God's this impotent person. But yet in church on Sunday morning, when the pastor says, do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? You say, amen. But then you walk out that door and you get in a fight with your spouse and you think the world is going to fall apart and it's going to unravel. If you believe that God can raise Jesus from the dead, then you believe that he can take anything that we think is on the trash heap that's in the ground and the dirt is being, you know, just shoveled over it. Anything that's dead and in the ground, God can raise to life. Look at verse... None of that was in the message that I thought I was going to preach today. (laughs) look at James 1 verse 22 you must be doers of the word not only hearers who mislead themselves that's at the heart of James message faith works hearing doing like we said earlier faith that is alive is a faith that leads us to faithful action James says that we have to hear, yes, but we have to do on this other side over here. The Bible isn't just a book of moralistic uh, teaching. It's not just a book where we can go to for nice self-help therapy. It's not there just there to make you feel good all the time. Uh, sometimes it's to call you out into a better way. And we say we want help with all sorts of things, but we don't always trust God to follow through on his instructions and his promises. We, we want help with our problems, and we don't know where to turn, and we have this word of God that's here, and sometimes when people come into my office, um, well, I don't know how they leave. <laughs> um, because sometimes the instruction is, well, have you read your Bible recently? Well, you know, I kind of get around to it when I can. Well, maybe you should open the book. Start reading. You know, we take the word hearing and doing, and we think, well, I read my Bible occasionally, and maybe so maybe reading doesn't count. Well, hearing for the people that James was talking to was pretty much their only exposure to Scripture. There weren't a lot of Bibles floating around. And so they had to go somewhere, and they had to listen to the word be spoken over them. And so James says that's how they're, that's how they're interacting with Scripture. They're hearing it. We have the blessing of printed word, and so we can read it. So maybe where it says hear and do, maybe you want to write in with a pencil or a pen or something. It's okay. You can write in your Bible. Just You don't have to cross off here because that's included. But you might also want to write the word read where it says here. Read and do. Absorb and do. That's what James is trying to get us to do. And so sometimes we read the book and we just look at it as self-help or this moralistic, yeah, that was a nice thing that Jesus had to say there, but I'm not convinced that it really applies to me and I'm going to go look elsewhere. and, And if you look around at the state of the world in which we live, all of the other words that are coming at us from other places don't seem to be working. The strategy is leaving a whole lot of brokenness. And so maybe the word that we have, James, is onto something, that if we listen to the word of God that's implanted in us, then it could be helpful. And that's where I feel this incredible weight of all of us 
And I, I know there's lots of problems that we have, and there's lots of brokenness, and there's a lot of hurt and pain and stuff that are going on in my lives. And I, I carry that around. And sometimes I want to just say, you know what? Turn to the Word. Give your life to Jesus and trust Him with it. Stop working so hard to try and fix yourself. Let the Holy Spirit do that work in you. There's this battle that's raging in the world all around us. It's a marketing battle for your mind and for your attention. God won't force himself on you, but he will constantly pursue you, and he's going to try and woo you to himself. We live in this time of information. you feel like you have an information overload in your life? I think so. I'm the first person to put my hand in. There's so many words that are flying at me on a daily basis. And sometimes I think there's so much information that we get lost and we get confused because there's so many there's so many opinions and so many directions, so many paths that we could go along. You can find a research statistic or a scientific study to justify almost every part of your behavior. It's out there if you search far enough and wide enough. James kind of uh, uh, pulls the curtain back on this this battle that's going on. He shows us that there's this competition between God's word and our own word. I asked uh, Lori this week to help me do a bit of research on the amount of words and images that are hurled at us on a daily basis. And it's kind of staggering. So listen to this. Every minute of the day, this is every 60 seconds, every minute, 204 million email messages are sent. Two and a half million Facebook posts hit the web every minute. 277,000 tweets. 216,000 new pictures are uploaded to Instagram. There's 3,472 pins on Pinterest and 72 hours. So this is every, every 60 seconds, every one minute, there's 72 hours of new video that's uploaded to YouTube. I mean, that's a lot of data, isn't it? It, it gets better. Oh, maybe, maybe I should say it gets worse. Uh, if you think you're suffering from information overload, a study that was just published suggests that we are bombarded with the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information per day. Per day. And so as a visual... I, I created, you're probably wondering what this is over here. It was too expensive to buy 174 newspapers. But if you stacked 174 newspapers on top of one another, it would be that tall. So that much information is what's thrown at you on a daily basis. That's what they say, uh, you know, we don't digest that much information on a daily basis. By no means. But what, what experts say is that that amount of data is put in front of our eyes. So we have the opportunity to interact with that much data. Talk about information overload. With words and pictures and videos and, and everything else, um, we reach like a volume of 34 gigabytes of information per day on average. And it's hard. We can't process all of that. Researchers, so this may get a little technical, but hang with me. So if you bust down every piece of data, of information, into a byte, uh, there are 300 exabytes of data that humans have created in the history of the world. That's what they're saying. We're, that we have about 300 exabytes of data that are just floating around out there. So to give you a picture of what an exabyte is, that's 300 billion billion bits of data. To put that in perspective, 300 billion billion bits of data is 315 times the number of grains of sand on Earth. That's a lot of data, right? That's out there that we're trying to swim through. No wonder we're confused. When James says, you must be doers of the word, not only hearers who mislead themselves. Because we say, well, which word? There's so many that are competing for my attention. I, I'm just lost and confused. I don't, I don't know which way to think. 
and our minds only process about 120 bits of data per second, which is pretty remarkable that the human brain processes that. But the information is coming at us way faster than 120 bits per second. And it presents, he, it, this presents this challenge, um, pushes us towards capacity for what we can actually process. We, it slows our decision-making ability way down. So it's hard to put into practice what we read in Scripture when we're assaulted with so much information on a daily basis. So what happens is we run the risk of letting God's Word just be another one of the words among the many that are coming at us. So we listen, but we don't do. But I want to I direct your focus in just a little different place here. It's connected. But this may be, this may be one of the coolest things that I've come across recently. I mean, the absolute coolest thing that I've come across. You're, you're going to love this, and it's going to blow your mind. So we believe that God created us. Amen? And like the psalmist says, uh, the psalmist said, you are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. That's Psalm 139, 13. And as the creator, God invented and he wrote all of the DNA code in our bodies, right? Jeremiah 31, 33, we read that God is going to make a new covenant with the people of, of Israel. And he says, God says that he's going to put his instructions within them, that he's going to engrave them on the people's hearts. That's in the word of God, Jeremiah 31, 33. And then we look at verse 21 today, and James says, welcome the word planted deep inside you, the very word that is able to save you. That's what it says, right? Verse 21, that's that the word is planted deep inside you. Okay. Do you, know, do you know how much information is actually stored in the human body, in one human body? And remember, remember that we said there are 300 billion, billion bits of data that humans have created that's floating around out there, right? That's what we said. I found it on the internet, so it must be true. Actually, I found it in multiple places. Seems to be pretty scientific, so I'm going to go with it. All of that data, 300 billion billion bits of data, is less, less than 1% of the information that's stored in your body that makes your body function. 300 billion billion is less than 1% of the capacity of your body. Isn't God awesome? I mean, everything that humans have created isn't but a drop compared to what's inside you. That God has taken the time, that he has carefully written so much into your body that it dwarfs all of the other data that's flying at us. He's written it into your cells. He's written it onto your hearts. You are made in the image of God. Isn't that cool? There's more data floating around inside you that's helping you operate than there are sand, bits of sand on the face of the earth. That just blows my mind. And James says, this word is planted inside us. The very word that is able to save you. James says you must be doers of the word, not only hearers who mislead themselves. See, God has written, he, God has given us his word that we can hold in our hands and we can view it with our eyes and we can listen to it read over us. And, and so we have this book, this, the, the, the word of God right here. But then, but then we have it written inside us, that he has engraved it on our heart. This is the word that James says you ought to do. God's made you in his image. He's wired you to be able to figure it out. He's given it to us in our hands. And we ask the question, I don't know which word we're supposed to obey. I think maybe it's kind of obvious. The 
that human pride gets in the way because it's all laid out in front of us. God just says, you know what? You can do this. I've given, I've laid it all out for you. Will you just listen and obey? It'll lead you to life. But our tendency sometimes is to think, well, I'm not convinced that the guy who could raise somebody from the dead can actually fix my problem. And so we go off searching for a better answer. James says, um, last thing, this, this whole theme of hearing and doing is found sandwiched between two statements about taming our speech, about controlling our tongue. Uh, th- this whole section began with some wise instruction that, that, works, that works in any situation. Did you hear that? It works in any situation. Verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to grow angry. And then he ends his whole section there in verse 26 by saying, hey, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Well, what does that mean? How tight a rein do I have to have on my tongue? Hmm. I think it's self-explanatory. I don't think there's much commentary or cute little stories or analogies that I need to come up with for that one. I had a boss once who said, uh, if I have to explain the ba- these little basic details, then you're probably not the right person for the job. And I think James has kind of laid it out here in front of us. Be quick to listen. Listen first. Be slow to speak. Be slow to grow angry. Uh, There's not much interpretation that has to go into that one. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. And when we believe the word and when we do the word, we find that the word will teach us how to relate to one another. There's biblical instruction for every relational issue that you face. Do you believe that? Will you do it? I call uh, verse 19, it gives us a grace pace. Be quick, slow, slow. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Quick, slow, slow. Quick, slow, slow. But a lot of times we want to we do it the other way. We want to be slow, quick, quick. Slow, quick, quick. We let that anger rise up in us, and then we just let people have it. And we say things that we may not mean in the moment. You know, we think we mean it in the moment, but then when everything calms down, we're like, oh, my goodness, I said that. Quick to listen, Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Not slow to listen, which means, you know, when somebody else is talking, you're not listening to what they say. You're, you know, you're thinking about what you're going to say next. Um, And then, you know, even before maybe they finish talking and you haven't heard what they said anyway, you start giving your own opinion because the anger has risen up in you and you, I got to just let it all out. James says, no, that's not how it works. You need to use this grace pace. If you look around the world, anger is everywhere. It's on the roads. It's in our political system. And what we call debates. And We let our human emotion and anger rise up and get the best of us and control us. So I think this instruction applies across every facet of life. Our speech is one of the first signs of whether or not we're being shaped by the word of God. What proceeds from our heart gives us a way. So if we're being shaped by the word of God, then we will start to follow this grace pace quite naturally because we will be compelled to because we love God and we want to do what he would have for us. Verse 20, James says, an angry person does not produce the righteousness of God. The problem is that we think it does. I 
We feel like our anger is justified. And we unleash it on people because we think that it's going to change them and we think that it's right. You'll never be able to Yosemite Sam your way back into the good graces of somebody. You might be right, but your your anger will not produce God's righteousness. And there are some times when you can be so right that you're just dead wrong. James says you must be doers of the word, not only hearers who mislead themselves. As you, as you leave this place today, I, I, I guess my hope and my prayer is that this would stick with you, that sometimes a message may come across as a big old two-by-four that reaches the back row That's not my intent. But James is Mr. Accountability like we talked about, right? And he's gotten up in my kitchen on this one. And you may feel inside right now that you may feel convicted. You may feel guilt. You may feel anger because something's been pointed out to you by the Holy Spirit. Don't blame me. Teasing, you can if you want. A lot of people do. I want you to think about this when you leave. That you would spend time and you would focus on God's word. The one that's in your hand and he has written it on your cells and engraved it on your heart. I would encourage you to take some time to just sit in his presence that you would linger there, that you would sink into his word and you would listen for the voice of God. It doesn't have to be an audible voice, but you would listen for God's direction and you would be slow in this process, okay? Take some time. As James would say, be quick to listen, quick to tune in, not like take a quick amount of time, quick to tune in and be slow to speak. Don't fill the air with your words. Wait for God's word. Because when you're the one making all the noise, you can't hear other people and you can't hear God. You know, we really can't do all of this on our own. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. We're going to close in the time of prayer here. And um, I just want to give you the opportunity to to think, to pray. Um, Think about what this might mean for you.